as the members of the legislature have been out of Tallahassee in their home districts, I've been able to visit a few of them in their home districts. I've spent a lot of extra time over at the Supreme Court and in the executive offices of the governor and the chief financial officer and the commissioner of agriculture and the attorney general and some of those additional offices as well. So it's been great to begin building relationships with folks there in the Capitol, praying every morning there in the chapel, which is on the plaza level. So if you're in there, pop your head in so you can see the chapel, small little chapel there where we do a lot of prayer. Uh, Thank you for your prayers for us. We're excited about the ministry in the Capitol. And what's coming up in the next couple of weeks is the committee weeks. So everybody will be back in town. It'll be crazy for a little bit. And that will be a great time for me to reconnect with some of the legislators as they've come back into town and been away for a few months. So please be in prayer for us as we continue to minister in Christ's name to those who serve us in the state capitol. Our sermon this morning comes from the book of Obadiah. You'll get a gold star if you can find it. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. There's a little cheat for you in the bulletin. It's found on pages 920 and 921 of the Pew Bible. So I invite you to turn there with me to the book of Obadiah. This is God's word. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not glean, leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, Destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, And cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. 
Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, illumine our minds. Make our souls stir at your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. He got what was coming to him. She got what she deserved. Have you ever said anything like that before? In literature, a a term has been coined to describe that type of saying. It's poetic justice. Uh, Poetic justice is the ideal form of justice in which the good characters of a story are rewarded and the bad characters are punished by an ironic twist of fate in the story. So, for example... In Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, we have a character named Mr. Bumble who is in charge of the town orphanage and other charitable institutions in the town where Oliver Twist is born. He's a sadist, though, and he enjoys torturing the poor orphans that are at his orphanage. As the story continues, Mr. Bumble marries a Mrs. Corny, but he does so for her money And he becomes the master of her workhouse, where the poor of the town live and work. And this is where in the story his fate takes a twist. As Mr. Bumble loses his position and his new wife does not allow him to become the master of her workhouse. And instead she beats him and humiliates him just as he had done to the poor orphans. And right at the end of the novel we come to find out that both Mr. and Mrs. Bumble end up being so poor that they live in the same workhouse that they once owned. That's poetic justice. An ironic twist for the evildoers in the story. In a similar way, we'll see in this passage that God executes his holy justice 
That's what the book of Obadiah is all about. Now, what do we know about Obadiah? Well, we know that Obadiah, his name means servant of Yah. And Yah is a shortened form of the covenant name Yahweh of God, servant of God. And Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate, had this saying about the shortest book in the Old Testament. Obadiah's difficulty is in inverse proportion to its length. There's a lot of controversy about how exactly do we parse up Obadiah's prophecy. But based on the content of his prophecy and the similarity of Obadiah to Jeremiah chapter 49, most scholars believe that Obadiah was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Right? Obadiah is prophesying and ministering shortly after the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586 B.C. So let's summarize before we begin. What's the central idea of Obadiah? If we were to just pick one phrase, it would be divine justice. But to elaborate on that a little bit more, God will execute divine justice on his enemies and will deliver his people into his kingdom. And then to get a little bit more specific to the content of the book, God will judge Edom for their cruelty to Israel during Babylon's sacking of Jerusalem and will provide ultimate deliverance for his people. God will judge Edom for their cruelty to Israel during Babylon's sacking of Jerusalem and will provide ultimate deliverance for his people. Now, another important thing I want you to grasp before we begin to unpack Obadiah's prophecy is that throughout the prophecy, you will see that there is a symbolic spiritual reality behind the historical reality of the events of Obadiah, a symbolic spiritual reality behind the historical reality of the events of Obadiah. And what Obadiah sees through his historical events, he sees past them to a greater, more profound, dire portent of a greater apocalyptic appearance of the day of the Lord. Now, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit, but keep that in mind. Behind the historical reality, there is a greater symbolic spiritual reality behind those events. So here's how we're going to break down the book. We're going to break it down into two parts. Number one, verses 1 through 14, the idea is to fear God's judgment. Number two, in verses 15 through the end of the book, hope in God's salvation. Fear God's judgment, hope in God's salvation. Now, as we consider the first point, note that as the book begins, it begins with this phrase, thus says the Lord God. Now, that's not the only time that that phrase is used in the book. In 21 verses, it's used four times. Verse 1, verse 4 and 8, it says, declares the Lord. And in verse 18, The Lord has spoken. Now, every single time, the name that's used there is Yahweh. So it's the covenant name of God. Yahweh has spoken. This is not the word of Obadiah. This isn't the word of the king of Israel through one of his servants. This is the word of God, the covenant God, Yahweh. 
Now what's interesting about this prophecy is that although it's about and towards the Edomites, the Edomites likely never heard this prophecy. But Obadiah is speaking this prophecy to the Israelites. That is his audience, the Israelites, not the Edomites primarily. And God is speaking this prophecy to his people for their encouragement. Okay, keep that in mind. God is speaking this prophecy to his people for their encouragement. This prophecy this morning is for your encouragement as well, people of God. Now, if you know a little bit about the history of Edom and Israel, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, to two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. The Israelites are descendants of Jacob. And their conflict between those two brothers, Jacob and Esau, didn't just end with their own lives, did it? It continued all throughout Scripture as their descendants continued to have animosity towards each other. So, for example, you might remember as the Israelites are leaving Egypt on the Exodus, Moses requests to pass through the territory of the Edomites. And what do they say? No. So what happens to the Israelites? They got to go way around Edom to get into the promised land. And that conflict continued from Jacob and Esau through the Exodus down all the way to this point in time where Obadiah ministers shortly after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, what is the problem in this prophecy between Edom and Israel? Well, let's consider first in verses two through four. What is the judgment against Edom? Look again at these verses with me. God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The judgment is against Edom for Edom's great pride, says several times, in the passage. And it's helpful to have a historical context about the language God is using here because it's ironic. He uses all of this mountainous geographical imagery, right? You in the heights where the eagles soar, I will bring you down from there. The Edomites were known for having impenetrable fortresses in the mountains of Edom. They were so difficult to get to that they could not be overtaken. And so the Edomites took great pride in that. And in fact, if you've ever seen pictures of the city of Petra in modern-day Jordan, where there are literal cities carved into the mountains, that's the country of Edom. That's the territory of Edom. So in these rugged mountaintops, the Edomites had great fortresses that they said could not be penetrated. And the Lord says, think again, Edomites. I'm going to bring you down From there. And in verses 5 through 9, God says regarding the judgment that he will not spare. Look again at those verses with me. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. 
Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. God's judgment is total. God's judgment is perfect. God's judgment is complete. For Edom's sins, God will not spare. Now, there are six ironic judgments that God lists in these verses. So here they are. And pay attention because there's going to be an ironic twist to these six judgments. Number one, in verse one, the Edomites will be destroyed by war. Number two, in verse two, they will be made insignificant and despised. Number three, in verse four, they will be humiliated. Number four, in verse six, they will be pillaged. Number five, in verse seven, they will be betrayed. And finally, in verse nine, they will be slaughtered. Destroyed by war, made insignificant and despised, humiliated, pillaged, betrayed, and slaughtered. That's the judgment that God pronounces against the Edomites in these verses. Now, why? That's the next question. Why? Why this complete and total judgment against the Edomites that Obadiah prophesies? Well, God answers that question, why, in verses 10 through 14. So you had six ironic judgments in the preceding verses that we just mentioned. And in verses 10 through 14, God gives five sins which Edom has committed, which correspond to the previous six judgments. All right? They've committed some sins, and these judgments are ironic judgments against them for those sins. So look at verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Now, what are the five sins that are listed here that Edom has committed? In verse 10, they have done great violence to their brother Jacob. They have done great violence to their brother Jacob. Verse 11, they stood aloof when their brother was in need. And they were just like one of the Babylonians. Thirdly, in verses 12 and 13, we read several times, they gloated over Israel's misfortune. They rejoiced over Jerusalem's ruin. They boasted in Israel's distress. Fourthly, in verse 13, the Edomites invaded and looted Jerusalem. 
And finally, in verse 14, they slaughtered the fugitives and turned over survivors to death. So let's take a second here and see how these correspond to what the judgments are, right? Edom has committed great violence against his brother Jacob. So, back in verse 1, they will be destroyed by war. They have caused violence, but they will be destroyed by war. Secondly, when they stood aloof, just like one of the Babylonians, no God, in verse 2, will make them insignificant and despised. They considered Jerusalem insignificant. They weren't going to intervene there. Thirdly, they gloated gleeful, gleefully over the misfortune of Jerusalem. They rejoiced over its ruin. They boasted in its distress. And so God says in verse 4, you will be humiliated. In verse 13, they invaded Jerusalem and looted her. And in verse 6, God says, no, you will be pillaged. And then finally, they slaughtered the fugitives of Jerusalem and turned them over to death to the Babylonians in verse 14. And so God says in verses 7 and 9, no, you will be betrayed and you will be slaughtered. You see the poetic justice, the ironic twist that's taking place here? Now, let's summarize what's happening. All right, we've just sucked in a whole lot of stuff. Let's summarize what's happening here in Obadiah. All right, here's the summary. The Edomites, far off distant brothers of the Israelites, helped Babylon destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They gleefully relished in its destruction. And they captured fleeing Israelites and turned them over to the Babylonians for execution. Right? That's what's going on in the prophecy of Obadiah. Now, what's so ironic about what we've just read, about these sins and the judgments against them that God pronounces, is within a hundred years of Obadiah's prophecy, Edom is in ruins by the Babylonians. You see that? Edom is in ruins by the Babylonians. Those whom they aided and were their allies have betrayed and turned on them and brought them into utter ruin. And are there Edomites anymore today? The answer is no. Because they've been wiped out. And God uses two times this covenantal language, you will be cut off forever. Now that language means you will be cut off from the covenant community. You will not be a part of my people. Forever. What a judgment that is against the Edomites. Of all the other judgments, that's the gravest, that's the worst. And their fall is no accidental occurrence because their sin has been so great. Part of the reason their sin is so heinous is because it's a form of fratricide, the murder of a sibling, right? It's particularly heinous when Cain kills Abel. Or as you think through literature and mythology, fratricide comes up over and over again as an example of one of the most repulsive forms of evil. So Romulus, the founder of Rome in Roman mythology, he kills his brother Remus so that he can establish Rome. It's repulsive to the readers. And that's exactly what Edom has done to his brother Israel in a situation. Now, keep in mind the context of the Israelite mind 
as they hear this prophecy. All right, try to put yourself now back just shortly after the fall of Jerusalem, and you're an Israelite, and you've seen everything destroyed. All of the buildings of the city are gone. All of your possessions are obliterated. Some of your family has been murdered. Your culture, which has been around for thousands of years, your religion for thousands of years, the Babylonians have come in and wiped it out. And Obadiah speaks this prophecy to the Israelites concerning Edom and their betrayal of them for their encouragement to remind them that the enemies of God will be condemned. God will execute his justice. And this is for encouragement to the believer. Think about the believers in Afghanistan this morning. This type of prophecy would be an encouragement to them. As those who are coming door to door to drag them out and execute them will be held accountable for their evil. Those who hate the Lord and hate his people will receive the justice of God. And when we hear that God will execute his justice, it should create in us a holy and reverent fear of God's justice. A healthy fear of God's sovereign justice. Now, thankfully, Obadiah doesn't end his prophecy there. Obadiah reminds us that God is not only a God of justice, he is a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy and grace and hope. And so we can hope in him. And that's where he takes us in the last half of his prophecy from fearing God's judgment to hoping in God's salvation. So he shifts from this microcosmic view of what's going on in Israel, in Jerusalem, with Edom, during the time of the fall, around the Babylonians. He shifts from this microcosmic view and he blows it up into this big macrocosmic view of redemptive history. And you'll remember, as we said in the beginning, there's this symbolic spiritual reality behind the historical reality of the events of Obadiah. Well, Obadiah is about to unpack that as he sees in the evil of the reality around him a greater, more dire portent of a pending apocalyptic judgment on the day of the Lord against the nations in verses 15 through 21. And he's going to talk about two really important events. First, the day of the Lord in verses 15 through 18. And secondly, the coming of the kingdom of God in verses 19 through 21. The day of the Lord in verses 15 through 18 and the coming of the kingdom of God in verses 19 through 21. So look with me at verses 15 through 18 first. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now that's interesting because he's only been talking about Edom. And now immediately he shifts from Edom, tiny Edom, to blow us up to this greater macrocosmic spiritual symbolic reality that Edom and all that's coming on them as a result of their evil and the judgment that God pronounces upon them is just a small type picture 
of a greater judgment against all the nations. He says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head, for you have drunk on my holy mountain. So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now, when Obadiah refers to the day of the Lord, that's that great and awesome day when God visits justice upon his enemies and ultimate salvation upon his people. And you'll notice again that what Obadiah does is he blows this up from Edom to all the nations in the lex talionis. That is the law of retaliation, whereby a punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree. Right? The lex talionis, the law of retaliation. You're familiar with this. We hear it over and over again throughout the Old Testament in this form. An eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. That sounds familiar. That's the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, where a punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree. So again, in these verses, we have three examples of poetic justice. So look in verse 16. We see the first one. As you, Edom, have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Now, what kind of drinking is Obadiah talking about here? Well, we know from extra biblical accounts that part of what the Edomites did is as the Temple Mount was destroyed, they went and celebrated and rejoiced and feasted and drunk, got drunk on the Temple Mount, celebrating its destruction with the Babylonians. And so God, in his twist says, just as you got drunk celebrating the destruction of my holy temple, you will drink something. What is it? What's the imagery that God uses here to drink? The nations will drink and drink and drink continually. The prophets use this language over and over again, and John uses it also in Revelation. They will drink the cup of the wrath of God. That's the first poetic justice. For their utter disregard for the holiness of God, reveling in their evil, they will drink the cup of the wrath of God. Now in verse 17, we see a poetic justice twist. And here is the first twinkling of hope in Obadiah. It's the first twinkling of hope in Obadiah. Look at verse 17. But... In spite of all that just happened, in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Now, there's an important word that Obadiah uses right at the beginning of verse 17. It's those who escape. That word can be translated those who survive or those who are delivered Right? It's the idea of salvation. There are those who will escape, those who will be delivered 
for the people of God, there is great hope that in spite of all the evil around them, they will be delivered. And notice the next phrase. There shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. What is Mount Zion at the moment Obadiah's writing? It's in ruins. The temple of God is down to nothing. All of the implements of the temple have been taken off by the Babylonians. But God says no. In Mount Zion there will be those who escape that evil and Mount Zion will not be filled with drunken revelry by those who hate the Lord. It will be a holy mountain. It will not be sinful, dispossessed of all of its things, but the last phrase of verse 17, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. They will not be dispossessed any longer. They will possess all of their possessions. That's the poetic justice number two in these verses. And finally, in verse 18, the idea of fire comes up in this verse. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now again, this is an ironic twist, because what we know from outside of the Bible, part of what the Edomites also did, is they were responsible themselves for the burning of the temple. They participated in burning down the temple of God. And so again, there's this ironic twist here. No, Edom, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph shall be a flame and the house of Esau will be stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. It's just like that early example from Oliver Twist, right? The evil characters of the story Receive justice by an ironic twist of fate. But in this example, it's no fate. It's the holy God who executes his justice perfectly and completely and wholly upon the Edomites. And I guarantee you there's not one Edomite who stood before God and said, what is this? We don't deserve this. But every Edomite would have stood before God with his mouth shut. And would have understand that God's justice is perfect. Now again, this is for your encouragement, believer. God has not forgotten you. Think about the Israelites. Again, put yourself in their shoes. Everything is gone. Their families, their possessions, their history, their people, their culture, it's gone. Thousands and thousands of years obliterated by the Babylonians and the Edomites and the armies that joined them. It's gone. And imagine yourself in that moment. You're thinking, God, where are you? What's, what's going on? The righteous in Jerusalem, understand that God's justice is being poured out. But Obadiah is reminding them, God has not forgotten you in the midst of this great evil. And God hasn't forgotten you where you are in the midst of all you are facing. You will be vindicated 
and God's enemies will be condemned. Now let me put two hedges around us when we hear things like this to help keep our egos in check. Number one, our enemies do not always equal God's enemies. We're good at that. If someone's our enemies, they're God's enemies. That group of people, that party, this person, those folks. If they're my enemies, they must be God's enemies. That's not true. We must be careful of having that kind of mindset. And secondly, if we keep in mind that our personal betrayal of God is far greater and infinitely more heinous than what the Edomites did to Israel, that will keep us in check. Obadiah is speaking this to us for our encouragement, reminding us that the enemies of God and the enemies of his people will be judged. But just because someone's our personal enemy doesn't necessarily mean they're God's enemy. And if we keep in mind that our betrayal is greater than anything we read in Obadiah against the holy God, that will keep us in check as we consider what Obadiah says here. The day of the Lord is coming. And Obadiah sees in this destruction a small taste of all that it involves. Now he ends the book with this beautiful passage about the kingdom of God in verses 19 through 21. He looks forward to another pending apocalyptic event, the coming of the kingdom of God. Look what he says. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Six times in two verses, the word possess is used. All right. Now, what's going on here? If you use Jerusalem as a center point, all of these regions that are mentioned are completely all around Jerusalem. Right. So you've got the mountains of Esau to the southeast, the land of the Philistines to the southwest, Ephraim, Samaria and Gilead to the northeast, the land of the Canaanites to the northwest and Zarephath is there as well. And then Negev to the south. So what's happening The kingdom of Israel, that is the kingdom of God, is expanding, right? Now, historically, does this happen, right? Jerusalem lays waste. Israel's long since gone. But do the people come back and repossess the land? Yes, they do after the exile, right? They come back. But that's just a puny remnant of what was originally there in the land. So behind the historical reality, there's this typological view of something far greater and what is the expansion of the kingdom of God that Obadiah references here? It's the church. That's why in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And look, it's 2,000 years later and where is the church? It's everywhere. All the nations have seen The glory of God. All the nations have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that Obadiah says here, everything that Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, it's happened. 
It's in our lifetime that we've seen the gospel go out across the entire world so that every nation has the seed of the church. Now, at this point in the prophecy, you're probably longing for Jesus. Where, where is Jesus in this prophecy? That's always a good question to ask yourself when you're reading in the Old Testament. Where is Jesus in this passage? Well, guess what? He's here. He's in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That first word, saviors, in the Hebrew, that's the word yasha. That's the root word, yasha. That should start to sound familiar. It's where the Old Testament name Yeshua comes from, which is the Hebrew version of the Greek name Jesus, right? So here's a foreshadowing, a little taste Obadiah throws in there. Saviors are coming to Mount Zion and they will rule over even Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, how does Obadiah end his prophecy? He ends it with the hallelujah chorus. Think of Revelation chapter 11. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. That's how Obadiah ends his prophecy. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's forever and ever. Now that was begun by Christ at his first coming. It'll be culminated by Christ at his second coming. But in the meantime, he's using you and me to accomplish this beautiful picture. So Obadiah begins with the fear of God's judgment. And rightly so. We should have a healthy, reverent fear of God's judgment. But he rises us out of the depths of God's justice against the evil, and we end in glorious praise of the saving Messiah to come, who will rule and reign with his people, all the nations, forever and ever. Now, as we end, this is the question we should be asking ourselves as we end Obadiah. Am I of Edom? Or am I of Israel? Do I belong to Esau? Or do I belong to Jacob? Because God's promises will stand. His promise of justice against his enemies will stand. And his promises of salvation in his Messiah, will stand. And in the midst of destruction, and in the midst of despair, and in the midst of loss, and in the midst of grief, the Israelites, those who follow Yahweh, are encouraged by Obadiah's prophecy to rest and hope and trust in God. And that's the same promise and encouragement for you today. In the midst of destruction, in the midst of despair, in the midst of grief, in the midst of loss, there is a God in whom you can hope. And here he is in the tiny book of Obadiah, making his promises known to you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this little book which you have placed in your holy word 
to be a reminder to us that you have not forgotten us, to be a reminder to us that your promises will stand true, to be a reminder to us of your holy justice and of your glorious salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. Father, as we leave this place today, we pray that we would go with the joy and encouragement of the Lord who has risen from the dead and rules and reigns. Almighty God, let us be a light in the darkness. And if the darkness should deepen, let our light shine the more brighter. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.